if the Lord knew we needed that on a Monday morning in week five. Thank you for that encouragement. Would you open your Bibles, please, to Zechariah chapter 3? I'm thankful for this opportunity to address you this morning. Zechariah chapter 3. I know I'm about to insult most of you, but that's the second of the last book in your Old Testament. One of my favorite lines from Toy Story. <laughs> this is for Dr. Goodwill. Is when the toys are all in the moving truck and they see the car zooming up behind them and Woody and Buzz are on it. And uh, Mr. Potato Head says, Woody was telling the truth. And Rex said, now I have guilt. <laughs> and it seems that Rex's concern is not that he didn't believe Woody and that he vilified him and that he joined his friends in rejecting him, but that he's now going to have to deal with feelings of guilt about it. You know, that, that's the real concern. And there's something very modern about that. Guilt is something of an obsession in our culture. People have coping mechanisms to deal with all these feelings of angst that they carry with them. They mask their pain. They mask it with uh, drugs or alcohol or work or entertainment or pleasure or, you, or food, you name it. What they don't want to believe is that they are guilty. They just want to avoid feeling guilty. That's the issue. Because Satan never wants us to view our guilt rightly. He tells us falsehoods about our guilt. God always wants us to deal with guilt according to truth. He tells us the truth about our guilt. And I hope we will be both encouraged and challenged by how this little text in Zechariah 3 helps us sort out dealing with guilt. Here's a little context. Uh, a remnant of Jews has returned from Babylonian captivity. Cyrus, king of Persia, said, you can go home. Around 536, they organized, and a number of them went home. They immediately, very shortly, laid a foundation for the temple, but then life intervened, and they are scraping by and barely surviving, and they just haven't done anything to finish the temple, and God raises up two prophets, Haggai and Zechariah. And through their preaching... The leader, Governor Zerubbabel, and the high priest, Joshua, kind of catch fire for resuming the building of the temple and completing it. Chapters 1 to 6 of Zechariah are a series of eight visions, most of which are given to these dispirited exiles to try to encourage them to get about the work, assuring them that God will help them under these adverse circumstances. This chapter is the fourth of those visions. And it's all about this man Joshua, not the Joshua who's famous for conquering Canaan, but Joshua the high priest at this time. So I want us to work our way through this chapter and consider the problem of guilt. Y'all with me this morning? Verse 1. And he showed me, here's a vision, Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at his right hand to resist him. I believe Joshua here is representative of this exilic community, or at least the godly members of this community. And he is standing before the angel of the Lord. Who is the angel of the Lord? Well, he's this figure in the Old Testament who often speaks as God. 
He's going to do so, in fact, in verse 2. He speaks for God. He speaks about God, and sometimes he's spoken to by God. And all of that's a little confusing and leads conservative commentators to believe that the angel of the Lord is the second person of the Trinity who periodically took form on this earth to reveal God's will before eventually taking incarnate flesh as Jesus Christ. So the angel of the Lord is there, but Satan's there too. And he is there to accuse Joshua. The word resist there literally means to accuse. In fact, it's related to the word Satan. They're based on the same root. And the word Satan means adversary. And his adversarial relationship to us is primarily accusing us. Accusing us to God, look how sinful they are, and accusing us in our conscience by means of our conscience saying, look how wicked you are. Revelation 12 says the accuser of our brethren is cast down, which accused them before our God occasionally. That's not what it says, is it? How often does he accuse our brethren before God? Day and night. Day and night. He never wants us to escape the guilt of our sin. Does he have anything to accuse Joshua of? Verse 3. Now Joshua was clothed with filthy garments. That's about the strongest word for filthy you can find in the Hebrew language, I'm told. I mean, it's disgusting how this word is used in other passages. This is as filthy as you can get. There's nothing good here. So, I'll ask again. Does Satan have some basis for accusing Joshua? Joshua's garments are his own righteousnesses, his own good deeds, his own qualifications. Or, we might say it's his sins. Because it's the same difference. That is, he doesn't have anything that he's offered to God. Everything is tainted by sin. All his righteousnesses are filthy rags. Spurgeon liked to say that our supposed righteousness is more hard to conquer than our actual sins. Because our supposed righteousness is filthy rags. We have nothing with which we can stand before the angel of the Lord. This is the natural state of mankind. It's our natural state by birth. Theologians call it total depravity. And now we're talking about guilt. All right, so we've obviously got two different uses of the word guilt, right? Guilt can be an objective fact. Someone has acted or is contrary to the right, falls short of the glory of God. That's guilt. I ate the donut and it wasn't mine. I'm guilty. Do I feel guilty about it? That's another question, isn't it? Because guilt can be a subjective feeling. You feel bad about something you have done. The two don't always follow themselves around the way they're supposed to. And that's Satan's deception. Satan will often lie to people, lie to us about our guilt. He wants guilty people not to feel guilty. He doesn't want them glancing down at their rags. He doesn't want them thinking about their innate filthiness. I uh, read in a, a pastor named Stephen Rummage gave a story about a man who had this compulsion. He couldn't help it. 
He went in a restaurant and he ordered water and the waiter brought him water and he grabbed the water and he threw it on the waiter. And the waiter said, why did you do that? And the guy said, I can't help it. I can't help it. Every time I get a glass of water, I, I, just, I, I can't help it. It's just, but I promise, I won't, I won't do it again. Would you get me another glass of water? So the waiter goes, oh, okay. So he brings me a glass of water, sets it down, the guy grabs it, throws it on the waiter. He said, what's this about? And he says, you know, I need help. I need help. I'll get therapy. He says, you, you need therapy. So the guy goes off for about a month, gets therapy, comes back to the restaurant, same table, same waiter. Who, who, go figure. And the waiter comes over to serve and said, wait a minute, you're the guy that threw the water on me. He says, yeah, but I got therapy. I, I'm cured. Please, can I have a cup of water? And the guy says, just, oh, okay. And he brings him a cup of water, sets it down. The guy grabs it and throws it on the waiter. He says, I thought you got cured. He says, I am cured. I don't feel guilty about it anymore. That's the way therapy works in our world, isn't it? We're not trying to solve the problem. We're trying to solve the feelings of guilt about the problem. Because Satan doesn't want us to feel bad when we do bad things. He doesn't want ungodly people to feel like they're estranged from God and in need. But I'm encouraged that in this text, Satan is employing a different deception. I would hope, it is my prayer, it is my intense desire that everyone in this gym is a believer. I can't assume that. And if you are not a believer, even though you're dressed up nice and singing and sitting in chapel at a Bible university, you are dressed in filthy rags. And those rags will not do in the day of judgment. You will not stand in the judgment. But I believe better things about you. And this text is about Joshua the high priest, who is a believer. He is one of the members of this community. And so we come to a different deception. Satan wants those of us who are forgiven to still feel dirty. Those of us who have been changed, transformed, he wants us not to look at Christ. He doesn't want us to look at God and his work. He doesn't want us to look at Calvary. He wants us to look at ourselves. And guess what you will see every time you look inward? You'll see some filth still. Now we're in the process. We're not totally depraved anymore if you're a believer. You're in the process of being transformed. But if you look in, you will always find something that you can make fodder for Satan to accuse you with. Always. Dr. Oates, many, many years ago, 20 years ago something, preached from this platform a sermon that I have carried ever since. He said, your conscience can tell you you're guilty, but your your conscience can't tell you you're forgiven. That is, if you scrape your conscience, it'll constantly be showing you, but in order for you to believe you're forgiven, you need to believe truth about you. And that truth begins in verse 2. We've seen our natural state, but look at our supernatural defense. Verse 2. The Lord said unto Satan, The Lord rebuke thee, O Satan. The Lord rebuke you, O Satan. This is not an amening crowd, I get it. But when Satan says, Look at Saxon, the guy's still a sinner. He still blows it. He, he, sometimes he's almost late for chapel. The Lord says, 
The Lord rebuke you, Satan. He jumps to my defense. Is there any better news than that? He jumps to your defense when Satan accuses you day and night before the throne. But how can God do that? On what basis can God defend Joshua despite the fact that Joshua still has personal unworthiness and always will in this life? Well, he tells us. We're still in verse 2. The Lord rebuke thee, O Satan, even the Lord, notice, that hath chosen Jerusalem rebuke thee. The Lord has chosen Jerusalem. She belongs to him. You didn't have to. This is grace. Joshua's a member of this exilic community. Joshua cannot be accused successfully because he is one of God's chosen ones. Jerusalem is flawed, it's corrupt. Joshua is sinful. These are a sinful people, but they're a sinful people who belong to Yahweh by choice. And so Satan's accusations can't stick. Who can lay anything to the charge of God's elect? Paul rhetorically asks. And God doesn't choose worthy people. People become worthy because he chooses them. But there's a second reason. Is not this, Joshua, a brand plucked out of the fire? Joshua isn't just loved. He's redeemed. This fire, uh, in the context, is almost certainly Babylonian captivity. He has been part of a community that's been under the judgment of God, the 70 years in which God promised for centuries that if, you, if this people sins against me, I will expel them from the land. They have been sent into exile, and now they've been restored. They've been rescued. They've been returned to God's favor. They've been established safely in the land. And Satan thinks he's going to be able to lodge an accusation against them now? Who is he that condemneth? Will the Redeemer, who died and was buried and is now interceding for his people, will Satan be able to get anything to stick on you? Joshua is safe from Satan's accusations because he's chosen and because he's redeemed. But there's a third reason. Look down in verse 4. And he answered and spake unto those that stood before him, saying, this is the angel of the Lord, take away the filthy garments from him. And unto him he said, behold, I have caused thine iniquity to pass from thee, and I will clothe thee with change of raiment. You know what we call that in the New Testament? Justification. Our filthy garments have been removed. And now we've been given these clean, beautiful garments. For Joshua, their garments fit to be a high priest in, fit to enter God's presence. He's given a clean turban. Let them set a fair miter upon his head. That is, that symbol of his priesthood has been purified. So they set a fair miter upon his head. They clothed him with garments that were suitable for serving the Lord. And the angel of the Lord stood by chosen, redeemed, justified. Those are the privileges Joshua's been given. And as New Testament saints, those are the privileges you and I are given. Don't let Satan 
draw up, dredge up old sins, old failures, forgiven sins, sins that you've repented of, failures that you've had in the past, struggles that you continue to... Don't let Satan dredge those up and say, you're just filthy, God can't love you. No. Satan can't stick innocent, guilty, on people that God has declared innocent, that God has declared righteous. In fact, the danger Joshua has is what if he draws back from serving because he's conscious of his own filthiness? He has to believe he's robed in white. But he's conscious of the fact that he's never perfect. Neither our election, redemption, or justification actually affect our purity in this life. We won't be finally pure until glorification. So what if Joshua, as a sinner doesn't serve, doesn't enjoy comfort, doesn't enjoy peace, doesn't enjoy joy, if I can put it that way. Because he's allowed Satan to have an inroad by means of his conscience. Joshua needs to believe that God is a God who saves sinners. It's crucial for you and for me to truly believe that we are forgiven, that our sinful garments are taken away, that we are accepted, loved, and dressed forever in the righteousness of Christ. So who are you going to believe about your state? Satan or God? That's that's what Joshua is faced with. Why do we have this hope? Let's jump down to verse 8. I'm going to come back to 6 and 7. 8, 9, and 10 is this passage that explains why Joshua can be justified. I'm going to be brief here, although it's a magnificent text. Verse 8. Hear now, O Joshua. So he is directly addressed, the high priest. Thou and thy fellows that sit before thee. Uh, these fellows are mentioned earlier as around the throne. So I think this is pictured, these justified saints, Joshua representing them. You are, they are men wondered at. The idea of men wondered at is they are men who are serving as a sign, a picture. You represent this truth. This truth that forgiveness is going to be provided. Who's going to do it? Well, let's read about him. For behold, I will bring forth my servant. That's the most common title in the Old Testament for the Messiah. He is the servant of the Lord who is coming to take the place of his people, to die for the atonement of the whole world and save us from our sins. He is also the branch. Now that's only used four times in the Old Testament, but each time it it ties him to King David and says that that king is coming from David, from the line of Jesse, who will rule over his people forever. He is the servant. He is the branch. He is the stone. For behold, the stone that I have laid before Joshua. That is a metaphor for Messiah in a number of places. He is the stone upon which you either build your life or it crushes you. He is that precious stone. He is the stone that has seven eyes. This is kind of a subtle way of saying that when Messiah comes, he will be omniscient. He will be God. Only God could pay the price. I will engrave, behold, I will engrave the graving thereof, saith the Lord of hosts. All of a sudden, we get to a passage that's real hard to interpret. I will engrave the graving. 
There were a number of early church fathers who actually argued that this refers to the scars Christ bore at the cross. I don't know, maybe that's fanciful. Possibly, I engrave the graving means that he will bear my character. It will be the name written on his forehead. I'm not sure. But notice where it goes next. And I will remove the iniquity of that land in one day. In one day. Messiah comes, he's going to deal with sin once and for all. However, in the next verse, we find out that this day is a day in which Israel enjoys this blessing. In that day, saith the Lord of hosts, shall you call every man his neighbor under the vine and under the fig tree, and that's millennial blessing. So that there is a day coming when Messiah will defeat all the enemies arrayed against my people. I will regenerate them. I will restore them. I will raise them up and give them the land. Israel, this is millennial triumph. But the work that Messiah did so that Israel could be saved is the work that saves you and me. So that's our only hope. But I skipped verses 6 and 7. So let's go back. Because there's another aspect of this guilt question that Messiah deals with, but in a different way. All right, so remember, let's recap. We are all by nature in filthy rags. But because we are loved, redeemed, and justified, we stand before God in pure white garments, garments fit for sacred service. That's possible because of the coming Messiah. Verse 6. And the angel of the Lord protested unto Joshua. Now that word protested means he solemnly charged him. He gave them a very important reminder, we might say. And what is that reminder? Thus saith the Lord of hosts, If, if thou wilt walk in my ways, and if thou wilt keep my charge, keep my commandment, then thou shalt also judge my house and keep my courts, and I'll give thee places to walk among these that stand by. That is, if, if you obey, if you are faithful, if you do the right things, then you will have opportunities for service in my court, in my temple, among my people. You have You will walk among those that stand by around my throne. You will have access and fellowship with me. I had a student years ago, and I knew exactly what the student meant, but it still struck me as a common error. The student wrote, I love that I can know for sure that I am going to heaven and that I don't have to worry about doing good works. What the student meant was, I don't have to do good works in order to get to heaven. But justified people do good works, right? There's there's transformation here. That is, the white garments that are put on us are holy Christ's. And then we are told to obey. I am fully aware that sanctification ultimately succeeds because we are all predestined to be conformed to the image of Christ. I am aware that all obedience is by means of God's power. Good works, according to Hebrews 13, 21, are by the grace of God that works in us what is well-pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be the glory forever. I'm aware of that, and I hope you are. But what sanctification looks like today, tomorrow, and the next day is this. Obey, God says, and I will bless you and make you useful in my service. 
disobey, and you will squander blessing, fellowship, and joy. Now let's just suppose that in this conditional framework, you don't obey. Let's suppose you get caught up in sin. Let's suppose you give in to your temper, your tongue, your, your greedy eye. What should be the result for you? Brace yourselves. Guilt. Oh no, I have guilt. I've just argued that Joshua is robed in, the, in garments not his own. That righteousness will never take him from him. His guilt, objectively, has been removed once and for all. He's a trophy of grace, a forgiven person. I hope you got that. That's the majority of our text. But then right in the middle of it, we have this if-then conditional. Because Joshua and you and I live between two states. The state of being utterly filthy and the state of being completely purified. In between, we are justified but sinners. And when we sin, we ought to feel guilt because God will tell us the truth about our sin. He wants guilt to lead to guilt. He says, Saxon, you are confusing me. I thought I'm not guilty because I'm in Christ. How do you respond to the feeling of guilt you ought to feel when you sin? How should you respond? Well, there's two ways. Stay with me. Three more minutes and I'll almost finish. The second thing you should do when you feel guilty about sin is rejoice in your justification. Because that sin was already paid for. You will never be rejected by God for it. That's the theme of a recent devotional book, Gentle and Lowly. Dane Ortland in that book says, Christ loves you on your worst days. He came to save sinners, not righteous people. Don't beat yourself up over your sinful past. Don't beat yourself up over your struggles. You are accepted in Christ. Yes, that's a good answer. It's the second thing you should think. What's the first thing you should think? I want the blessing of God in my life. I want to walk in fellowship with him. I feel this guilt. Even though I am accepted in Jesus Christ because I sinned and need to repent. I need to get right with him. I need to turn from this sin. You say, well, how do these go together? Well, let's suppose, I'll use the old illustration, let's suppose you were hailed before a judge and found out that someone else had paid your penalty and the judge was acquitting you, and then the judge says, I'm also adopting you and taking you home. And then about a week after you arrive in the judge's home and you're living with this person who's showering love on you, you disobey him egregiously. He said, stay out of the cheesecake. He gets home and half of it's gone. How should you feel? Well, you should not feel that you've just lost your adoption, that the judge isn't my father anymore. In fact, I'm back in the courtroom being condemned. You should not feel that. He's your, he's your father. He'll never reject you over anything, much less cheesecake. But what should you feel? You should feel that you hurt your dad. And you should ask your dad to forgive you. You should want his fellowship. You would, want him, you would want him to be able to trust you with service. And that's daily walking in repentance. So what do we do with guilt? We believe God, who says, when you're guilty, feel guilty and deal with it. Don't, Satan wants you just to languish in it. He wants you to wallow in it. He wants you to say, God can never use me. Repent. 
and trust in the justifying work of Christ in which you're enrobed in righteousness. And keep short accounts of sin. Because we don't want to just be justified. We want to be useful. And we want our Heavenly Father to be pleased with us. So Zechariah 3, in this Old Testament context, can help us deal with guilt. And I hope you will balance both. The joy of justification with the opportunity for repentance every time we're conscious of having sinned against our Lord. Thank you for this text, Lord. Thank you for what it teaches us about guilt. It teaches many other things. Thank you for our Messiah, the servant, the branch, the stone, the omniscient one, who has paid the price so that we can be guilt-free. And yet, Lord, during this interval, as justified people, We want to be useful. We want to be able to serve in your courts. We want access to your presence. And Lord, we don't want sin to separate us from our God. Help us to repent when we feel those pangs of conscience. Help us not to stifle them. Help us not to believe Satan's lies about our guilt. And I pray that you give us the joy of knowing we are accepted in Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray, amen.